Hey everybody, welcome to the Salt Lake Business Podcast. In efforts to make the show the best and bring you the most value, please, please, please email me and let me know what questions you want me to ask, as well as what topics you want me to cover for my next guests. My email is saltlakebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. Now today, I am joined by Julian Carr. Julian is a professional skier here in Salt Lake and is the founder of a clothing company called Discreet, as well as a mountain running series called Cirque Series. In this episode, we discuss how he founded his companies, how he pivoted from a wholesaling clothing company to direct-to-consumer, skiing off 210-foot cliffs, facing your fears, and having the right mindset. And now, let's get in the show with Julian Carr. All right, everyone, welcome to the Salt Lake Business Podcast. Here we give the uh, tools and tactics of Salt Lake's own uh, finest business owners. Today we are welcomed by the great Julian Carr. Julian, I appreciate you being on the show today. My honor, thank you. So if you want to uh, kind of give enlighten the audience, give them the uh, Cliff Notes version of who you are, what you're doing now, and how you came to be. Uh, my name is Julian Carr, and I'm born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. And, uh, you know, I was way into team sports, skateboarding, um, and then in eighth grade started skiing and, uh, quickly fell in love with it. And, um, throughout high school realized it was pretty much my main passion at that point. And, you know, as soon as I was going to go to college, I was like, oh, I should go to, you know, out of state maybe. I'm like, where has a really good school with really good skiing? And once I looked into that landscape, I realized really quickly I lived there. So... Um, I graduated from the University <laughs> of Utah, and this has been home base ever since, and during college, obviously, so I'm a proud Utah, you know, native, nice. and uh, so yeah, professional skier now, and I've founded a couple outdoor businesses um, as well, and so basically that all points in the direction. I just really love being in the mountains, and uh, I'm fortunate that I enjoy business, and so I've been able to monetize being in the mountains in three capacities, through the clothing business, my skiing, and through the mountain race series. Yeah, so tell us a little about that. What's the uh, business profile landscape look like? And it's, it sounds like it started with kind of a love for the sport. How did you, how did you take that love for the sport and transcend it into a monetization, into a business aspect? Well, in my entire upbringing, um, like I said, I skateboarded a lot. And so I was watching all the, you know, kind of individual athlete driven uh, industry that is skateboarding. Um, and skateboarders were good businessmen. They were, oh, yeah, for like sure. Like Rob Deerdeck, oh, yeah, Tony course, Hawk. Like they were like. Yeah, they know their stuff. Yeah. So that was kind of my perspective right away. And so when I got into skiing, um, you know, I, I was like, huh, there's a lot of opportunity here for individuals, for athletes. But the first opportunity I saw was for um, a business because at the time I thought that a lot of the companies out there had a, a bit of like a loud presentation, like uh, kind of flames, lightning bolts, oh, yeah. um, just loud, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, man, where's like the, you know, chill brand? And so I was like, we should just make a chill little brand in, in the ski scene. Um, and at the time I was just starting to get some sponsors and stuff uh, on my skiing side during college. So I was able to develop both at the same time, um, essentially. And part of my plan was, was I felt confident I could become a professional skier. Um, and I, as I started doing that, I learned more and more about what it took to be professional. And that's what I enjoy now about being a professional athlete is obviously the sport 
but the professional capacity. I enjoy being a professional. And, um, and at the same time, I was like, well, your shelf life as an athlete doesn't last forever. So at the time, I was like, I should create something that I can grow alongside me with my ski career. So when who knows how long, when that expires, I'll have you know, a brand so that I can still have income, obviously. Um, but in the day, it was just more creative outlet. Uh, mm. It's another way for me to be involved um, in being in the high alpine, you know. So how old were you when you started? So your first company, that was Discreet Clothing? Yeah. Is that correct? Yep. How old were you when you started that company? Um, I don't know my exact age, but it was uh, just towards the end of college there. Um, so probably around like 2004, 2005. Okay. Um, and so then you're probably what, like 22, 23 ish? Probably about there, maybe a little bit older. Okay. Yeah, I think I graduated when I was like 25. Gotcha. I was too busy skiing. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's a box checker. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, that's cool you bring it up. I don't know. You might know him. Um, he went to my high school. You know Brody Levin? Oh, of course. Yeah. Brody's so, a good guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. He so, went to high school, huh? Yeah, we that's went to awesome. high school together. Uh, and I, one of his years, he went to Vermont to ski yeah. during high school, uh-huh. and then he went to Westminster College yeah. out here, and then yeah. he just stayed. Yeah. Uh, so when you said you wanted to find a place to, to uh, ski, and you were living right here. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's kind of how I got to know Discreet, is because he, I think he was one of your sponsored athletes, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's yeah. kind of how I came to know the brand name. Yeah, Brody's great. Him and I uh, went to Iceland together, um, and that was an amazing trip. Uh, we've done like a little backcountry hut in the Sawtooth in Idaho together. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously plenty of Utah days, but we've had a few fun trips under our belt. But Iceland definitely stood out. But I, I love Brody. He's a good guy. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I'm going to try getting him on here. Cool, you should. <laughs> yeah, For sure, for sure. Uh, so so you started Discreet Clothing. Um, you found a little, you saw a gap in the business economy, right? You, you didn't see like a cool kind of trendy brand. That's where you found your niche. So you slid in there. And then um, how long did it take you to start getting traction in the scene? Well, that was the interesting part about, you know, founding Discreet was, you know, intuitively I had tons of marketing and PR um, and plenty of visibility. But as far as athlete, right? Yeah. And I had a lot of uh, opportunities, obviously, with media and the magazines that I was able to leverage to get exposure. So we had a lot of visibility right out of the gate. Um, which obviously I had that intent. Uh, and, you know, I graduated from the University of Utah with a degree in economics. And like I said, I've always been kind of business minded and enjoy being a professional. But until actually I started that business, um, you know, I truly learned supply chain, accounting, um, and basically everything that it takes to run a business. So it was like a crash course of, uh, you know, running a business. So, so college was useful? Tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. I think college to me is just like a proof of completing tasks. You can complete tasks. Yeah. You know, it's a nice Timeline. peace of mind. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so after like kind of taking that crash course in what it takes to run a business, um, it's been fun to... Uh, essentially I learned a lot, obviously with discreet over the last 10 years, we've made a lot of great decisions and plenty of poor ones. Um, I've learned a lot. And then at the ski side, um, besides just the marketing, um, there's like, you know, the role of producer, um, and 
being a professional. And so there's tons of marketing side there. So, you know, that the, the landscape for having a re, a hotel, a wholesale clothing company from, you know, 2007 to 2014 was very wholesale, you know, get them as many stores as you can, do all the trade shows, have your reps, try to get them an international distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, That model is obviously um, tightening up because all the direct to consumer uh, was emerging more and more, especially that industry. Um, So it was an interesting time for us to develop good habits, make it through bad decisions because we really were trying to exist in a business model that was getting tighter and tighter. Right. And so three or four years ago, you know, I was looking at our margins. I was looking at all of our moving pieces because um, at the time we were in, you know, close to 200 stores uh, throughout the U.S. and about 14 international um, distribution companies, uh, countries. What, how much are they taking a piece of the pie? Well, that's the thing. It was wholesale. So we'd get these volume discounts to big box stores like REI and Zoomies. Um, and then our, um, then our reps are taking their rep commission. Plus they want, you know, free rep samples and we got to pay for all these trade shows and we're growing. So I have to pay my factories on all these growth years based on all these POs, but I'm still waiting on net 30, net 60, net 90, net never from all these accounts from the year before. So it was this really weird, you know, cash flow struggle um, that really four or five years ago, I had to really evaluate um, and get innovative because, uh, from afar and obviously all these accounts that we had and growing everything from a high level looked like we were doing great, mm-hmm. but it was actually really tough because we, 5% of our accounts weren't paying each year cause they were closing the doors. Um, and I was like, man, we need to do something here. So if you would have told me five years ago that I'd have a mountain running race series <laughs> and that a third of our revenue would be doing branded goods for other companies like our private label business, What's that? Um, uh, we make branded goods for like coffee houses, breweries, all kinds of random companies. So like give me an example. Um, like Wasatch Brewery. So uh-huh. we made a whole bunch of, you know. So you're making like Wasatch Brewery, like shirts and sweaters and beanies and stuff? Yep. Oh, yeah. okay. So we'll get, like put our little side clip label on it and then we'll have like interior branding. Mm. But the primary branding is another company. And so that part of our business, we decided to focus on it. Um, and take all of our wholesale business away. Yeah. So we went all direct to consumer. So just our website now took away all of our trade shows because we were doing SIA in Denver, OR here in Salt Lake, and ISPO in Munich. Yeah. And took away all of our reps, um, and took away all these moving pieces. And I was like, you know what? Even if we do a third as much revenue direct from our website, the margins will be the same. So now, and all that headache is oh, gone. it's insane. It got so streamlined. Um, and I was like, we need to have some more cash flow in the summer because we're such a seasonal brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why part of the motivation. I mean, there's a whole story that I can get into about starting the Cirque series, but part of the motivation of creating those races was to have summer revenue to balance out that cash flow. Yeah. It was such a struggle for so many years. Um, and the private label is great because that's a prepaid. Um, aspect of the business so we get prepaid before we initiate any of those projects with our factory mm-hmm. um, and then obviously direct-to-consumer is amazing because you know we're gonna pay our factories to 
stock what we need, but people are paying as they go exactly. to buy it off our website, and then we just store the inventory and have a shipping manager that handles that. Um, so everything's so streamlined. Um, and then the races now are, you know, a third of the revenue. Our inline business is a third of the revenue, and our private label program is a third of the revenue. So everything's stabilizing over the last three or four years um, on that huge pivot that five years ago yeah, was t- an enormous sense of stress and figuring out what we're going to do. Yeah. So tell me about that pivot. What was the what was the light bulb in your head that went off saying you probably had. You're probably going over your books as like everyone does every year, and you're like, "All right, there's got to be a better way." Like these guys are eating me up; um, it's causing such a giant headache. How did you make the pivot to saying, "Hey, let's work with Wasatch Brewery, or let's work with some of these local guys"? Well, we'd been consistently having, you know, one or two of those kind of projects were constantly kind of, you know, what we we're doing, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "Man, we've never even tried leaning into this model." I'm like, but we always have this like random word of mouth and everyone's always really happy with the private label stuff. I'm like, so why don't we actually lean into this a little bit and solicit and and try to make this go? Um, And the more we leaned into it, just the more success that we've had with it. Um, So that was a nice affirmation of thinking that there's a lot of opportunity there and, and now it is. You know, we have a couple of reps now that that's pretty much what they focus on. Um, and, and at the same time I was getting way into mountain running because of my dog Lexi that you met, mm-hmm. um, I was pretty much a mountain biker at the time. And she, you know, when, when she was a puppy, she could keep up on a mountain bike, but I was like, man, she's going to be hurting by the time <laughs> she's six or seven. If I keep taking her on these big mountain bike rides. Yeah. And so I lived right by the trailhead to Mount Olympus. Um, and so I started hiking it with her. Uh, and she loved it. Um, so my buddies that did forest firefighting in the summers, they're like, Hey, we see you on Olympus all the time. If you can get up to that stream, that's about halfway in under 30 minutes, that's like the cutoff to be on like our forest fire fighting crew. And I was like, Oh, I'm in shape, you know, like I'm skiing and hiking all the time. Yeah. And so the next time I went, obviously turn on the clock and just you know, power hiked my way up there and it was like 31 minutes to the stream. I was so pissed because I didn't make the 30 minutes. And so I got addicted to the clock and trying to beat that 30 minute mark. And obviously Mount Olympus is, you know, one of the most gorgeous mountains around. And the fact that it's five minutes from my house, the trailhead, yeah, it's insane. and it overlooks the city and it goes straight up, right? So it's a 4,000 foot. 4,500, right? Yeah, yeah, just over 4,000 feet in like, you know, round trip, five and a half miles. It's a doozy, you know? (laughs) So I'm getting in amazing shape. I'm seeing amazing sunsets. Uh, Lexi's happy, my dog. And I fell in love with, for lack of a better term, trail running. I don't really identify myself as a runner, although I love, you know, I like to run, but I just never like lace up my shoes and go for a jog, right? Yeah. So I was doing the Mount Olympus to the stream and back, um, four or five nights a week for that first season that I fell in love with it when I got my dog. And I was like, man, I wonder if there's a race that's like hiking Mount Olympus and back down. And I looked into that landscape and I was just shocked. Zero. There's all like the ultras, the hundred miler races, the 50 Ks that they're all like 
quite elite that, to, to pull them off, which is amazing. And then there's lots of color runs, Spartans. There's 5Ks. All that stuff. Like in the street. Marathons, yeah. 5Ks. I got into like, trail running a little bit the uh, last last fall. And I went right into ultras because they're like, mm -hmm. if there was something like this, I would have been more inclined. But like, I've never even ran a 5K before. And then I go out and do a 50K in Antelope Island. Yeah. Just like jack up my knee and yeah, it's still yeah, like yeah. hurting now. I'm yep. like, damn it. Yep. There's... Because my, my knee hurt after like eight miles was the cutoff. After that, like my IT band would flare up. Yeah. And I looked at all your races and they're yeah. all like 7, 7.5. Yep. Yep. I'm they're like, just right. oh, they're exactly. just right. Exactly. This would have been perfect. That's why it works is because it's hard enough by the way that we, you know, create the courses to go straight to a peak and back down, right? So it's still really hard, but it's the amount of distance that, is an entry level for whoever wants to do them. And that's the beauty of it. When you're at the race, more than half the people there are the sport category. Um, and then, you know, there's definitely some pros there that are super fast, but to them, it's like a walk in the park because mm -hmm. it's so short, but they still have a great time and it celebrates their community, you know? And then there's tons of guys like just bros like us that, you know, love getting adventure, after being in the mountains, getting after it and aren't slow by any means, but we're not gonna probably win. Um, and so this, to have this like all spectrum of all kinds of personalities at the race are so fun. Um, and to me, I'm so used to being up in the high Alpine, you know, boot packing and getting up to these high kind of, you know, quote unquote extreme zones uh, mm -hmm. on my skis to get content and obviously have a good time, make videos and shoot photos and all that stuff. And I just know that some of these places i know my way around the wasatch so well and have good like uh mountain fluency from traveling all over the world um, that i know a lot of the people that do the races don't necessarily have that kind of fluency or would know where to start to go adventure into those places that to me i feel like are accessible for anyone mm -hmm. um, but obviously i'm leaning on having a lifetime of that fluency of being in the mountains and know how to you know seek out Set where and and so yeah so i have those kind of sensitivities to create the courses in a way that they are truly all ages um for the most part the youngest we've had is eight that's a, and our that's oldest like eight is to 70 82 82 yeah so like i said to have somewhere that for the elite olympian and in the 82 year old to beat the same race and it's amazing for both of them um, that's part of my gratification when like the race is over and people are just beaming with happiness and you know all the brands are having a great time and to me that's just more motivation to keep throwing great events is just seeing like true happiness from so many walks of life so that was a long answer to your question but that's when i realized that the model that we'd been doing with discrete for so long, just wholesale, you know, apparel into all these stores uh, was becoming more and more challenging. And I was like, you know what? We have, we're more successful than this challenge of being short on cash flow every year. Let's figure this out mm -hmm. because there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to. Um, so from that pivot on, it's been nice to still, you know, capture all that momentum that we had um, instead of just spinning our wheels trying to beat against that old model. 
Um, so like I said, if you would have told me six years ago, I'd have a mountain running race series, I'd be like, what, <laughs> you know? When did you start that company up? Um, Cirque series was 2015. So this will be our fifth year coming up. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And you got, I went on the count on the, uh, the website. Are those the dates for this year? Yep. Okay. Yep. So we drop registration in uh, mid October. Um, so we'll go to Alaska to Grand Targhee. Snowbird Alta, Brighton, and A Basin, Colorado. So right. six races, four states, and they essentially are every two weeks starting June 27th through September. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully I can get, get to one of them. I'm I getting, hope you can. Yeah, I'm getting a, uh, I got a steroid shot in my knee, which helped a little bit. Oh, that's I'm, good. I'm going back again next Tuesday to get it. Um, hopefully this is like the last time. But got it. This is the first time I've been, I've seen progress. It's yeah. been kind of like stale for like a year. Uh, well, think about coming to our Snowbird one because it's towards the end of August. Okay. And if there's anything that's weird about the knee, you can take the tram down. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I'm good going up. It's still so, it's there you down. Go. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. That's that way you'll have an out in case yeah. it gets hurt. <laughs> or you can just keep charging. Awesome, yeah. man. That's sweet. Uh, let's get into, so I don't know, if everyone you want to Google this, just, get, just type in Julian Card uh, Cliff Jump. And you'll, <laughs> you'll know what I'm talking about. You've got to watch all those videos. So I went on like a two-hour binge last night on YouTube just watching everything that you've been doing. And my first question is like, what possessed you to do something like that? Like your real record, 210 feet. Is that the one you have yep, now? Yep. Aerial front flip swan dive yeah. <laughs> into, into a powdery basin. What was the, how does that come to be? Well, baby steps and lots of practice. So I started skiing in eighth grade and, you know, rewind to my childhood. Ever since I was a little kid, I was taking gymnastics classes. Um, and I'd hardly ever actually finish any routine. I was always just wanting to go play in the foam pit. And for whatever reason, my favorite thing to do was to run as fast as I could and do, a, you know, blip into the foam pit. And I had a trampoline in my backyard growing up and every time I got off of it, so we're talking thousands and thousands of times, I had to do a flip off the trampoline every time I got off. So that mechanic of doing a front flip is just like so ingrained in me. And so in eighth grade when I started skiing, pretty immediately, obviously living in Utah, we truly have the world's best powder. Um, and obviously average 500 inches of it annually. Yeah, Colorado, um, you guys can suck it. <laughs> Colorado's cool, but it's, we'll let them think that Yeah, they have the best ski one. towns. I like their ski towns. There's just a lot of them, yeah. too, you know? They're but, like uh, true towns, whereas here we just have yeah. massive snow. Yeah, places like Telluride are, are definitely special, Crested Butte. Yeah, their town's gotta be good when they don't have a lot of powder. Yeah, they gotta fun. find something else to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, basically, I immediately associated how cool powder was um, to a foam pit. And that's truly uh, accurate. Um, so that analogy immediately, that's how I started looking at the mountains when I started skiing. I was like, oh, this is just a giant version of a gymnastics <laughs> foam pit. <laughs> and uh, obviously there's been a lot of, um, you know, trial trial and error along that path of being obviously in love with skiing now since eighth grade and um i've had you know a handful of pretty major injuries and they were all from 
skiing and not being 100% pre-thought out on what I was doing. Um, and the worst one I had was a, a shattered femur um, and I broke it in 11 pieces. I was Ooh. on this really technical ski line. And after being that hurt and doing all the physical therapy and coming back 100%, I made a promise to myself that I'd only do things if I was 100%. Because at the time I was more of like a 99% guy. And usually I just pulled off if I ran into anything real time. But finally it caught up to me. Um, and at the time, you know, I was at the, at the biggest maybe jumping 40 foot cliffs, which obviously is still uh, enormous. Um, but from that point on, I happened to, like I said, just love foam pits. Even in college, I took as free credit gymnastics all the time. And usually, again, I would just be jumping into the foam pit off the trampolines. I'd climb up into the rafters when like the teacher wasn't looking and drop from the rafters into the foam pit. Yeah. Um, so I was really always wanting to find bigger cliffs, but obviously it's super scary. And those conditions don't come around all that often when you can do that stuff. Um, so when it does happen, you really have to seize the moment, you know, and still have a very good protocol with your safety and how to assess the safety parameters. Um, so I got better and better at, at those things, which are obviously crucial. Um, and living here, uh, luckily those years during college, we had great snow years. So I had a lot of opportunity to keep that love for catching air and the cliff jumping baby steps, you know, because first five foot cliff I ever jumped is really intense. Mm -hmm. And then I just kept going at it until all of a sudden it was, I was comfortable. When then, you were doing these like five, 10, 15, were those always uh, front flipping landing on your back or were you, or were you landing them just skiing out? Yeah, those are just ski out. Ski outs. Yeah. When mm -hmm. did you get to the point where you were like, all right, let me just try to land this like a foam pit. <laughs> well, when you get over about 30 feet, which from ninth grade through first year in college was basically that trajectory, that timeline. Um, so as soon as I was 19 years old, you know, hitting cliffs as big as taller in this house, there was a mixed bag of how to land it. Um, and, you know, at a certain height, depending on how deep the powder is, there's certain ways you can land to have it hurt less and as long as you're 100% certain there's nothing lurking under the snow um, or if the landing's steep enough you can just stomp it right and at the time I was doing like a lot of the free skiing um, events and so you know I was just in love with skiing 100% and when big cliffs came around um, you have to know how to land in a way that you're not going to get hurt and so once I started really studying bigger cliffs, 30, 40, 50 foot cliffs, um, I'd gotten like one or two of those by the you know middle of college, but then it's scary. So anytime I was above, around bigger cliffs, it was just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And so I was like really wanting to figure it out, you know? And I remember I went up into Wolverine Cirque uh, this one summer and there's this famous like 100 foot cliff up there that I've now hit five times, which I'm psyched on. But that summer, I went up there, hiked up there, sat like cross-legged on the takeoff and just like, I don't want to say meditated, but just hung out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I was by myself and just breathed it all in and wanted to feel being in that kind of environment just to get comfortable uh, being on the edge of that big of a cliff and to just 
be in those environments. Uh, I feel like more mileage you can put on in being in the high alpine, the more you're able to like, you know, coexist with it and start speaking its language, so to speak, you know? And so the next winter, um, it was a great winter again. And then I finally had kind of an aha moment and I was like, you know what, when it's really deep and when I hit like a 30 foot cliff and a super deep powder, I mean, you literally don't feel it. That's like the amazing thing about deep powder. On that 210 one, you didn't feel that? No. Really? No. So that was my aha was, I was like, you know what? It, I'm in the air for maybe just over a second, second and a half when I'm doing like a 30, 40 foot cliff. I'm like, at the speed that I'm going, I only need to maintain my composure in the air and my relaxed state of mind and confidence for maybe 0.2, 0.3 more seconds to go from 40 to 80. And I'm like, that's it. It's only 0.2 seconds of composure. That's it. As long as the landing is beyond perfect. Mm-hmm. And so that epiphany, that winter, um, middle of the winter, I was able to size up this 80 foot cliff and the landing was beyond perfect. The takeoff was beyond perfect. It was really intense. I really want to just ski out of there and be like, ah, another day. And I'm like, no, now, like if you want to actually do this stuff, you have to like, you know, face this right now, think through it. Of course it's scary, but can you do it? That's the question. It's definitely scary. So I used all that fear to just critically think about the takeoff, about the sheerness and about the landing and think about the snow layers and how I was going to interact with them when I landed and that composure for that 0.2 seconds. Visualized it over and over again, found found my peace, converted that fear into full confidence, 100%. And it was funny because at the time I was like, I'm 100% by the promise I made to myself. I'd be untrue to myself if I didn't do it because Mm -hmm. I am 100% and I'm doing this. So I did it. Fully composed, landing was beyond perfect, didn't feel a thing. And when I started skiing away, I was laughing because I was like, there is no height limit. As long as you can be composed and as long as you know the snow and as long as the safety parameters are there. And if you have the mental, you know, tenacity to calmly assess and stare down these projects and think them through to 100% confidence, there is no height limit. Physically, mentally, that's the scary part, though, is that you have to think it all through to 100% confidence. There's no act of bravado. There's yeah. no slamming a Red Bull and just going for it. That's it's, that's the one thing I noticed about you yeah. when I was watching the uh, the YouTube videos last night. I was I, I saw like the highlight reel of you just, like flying off these cliffs, and I thought you were some like adrenaline junkie. After talking to you now, and and I saw this one clip. I think it was when you went off a of, uh, Wolverine Cirque. Uh-huh. Um, it was like the 130 foot one. But uh, but you came, maybe it was a 210th floor, one of the two, but you came to the cliff and they, they had you on camera and they were talking. It's like, you know, I came here to see if I could do it, not to see if I was scared of, of doing yeah. it. Yeah. And that's when I was like, oh, he's not some crazy adrenaline junkie. He's like logically thinking all this stuff yeah. out and seeing if he can do it. And he's facing his fears. Yes, so exactly. That, so that's when I was like, oh, he's a little <laughs> bit different than these other guys. Because yeah. you're not just like, I mean, you're sending it, but you're not just like, recklessly send it and see what happens on the other side like i love living i love being alive i love my health and to me it's um i i love it i love the process of the cliffs the 
from first seeing a cliff to all the mental intense thinking that goes into it, that's like just as fun to me as the actual cliff. Um, and obviously the applying like, like that same kind of thought process to business is the same thing. It's like you better, when you're doing business, not just jump off any cliffs. You need to really know where you're landing. You need to know the process. You need to know where all the you know, ways that things can go wrong, but obviously just focus on the path that's gonna be successful and be aware of everything though. So that's like the fun part about the cliff stuff is like entering that kind of state of hyper-awareness, you know, where mm -hmm. um, things slow down and you just become so present, you know, and being in the mountains and the place where it happens and usually some good friends that are out there with you documenting it or skiing with you or whatever. So it's a really nice um, existence and I, I really cherish it. I, I appreciate it. And obviously, like I said, I enjoy being a professional because I know that if there's some other guy out there doing what I do, I would sure want him to be documenting it and sharing it. So mm -hmm. that's like kind of this perspective I take on it too is like, there's really not that many people that do this as routinely as I do. So it's my, like my responsibility in a sense to make sure that I'm doing a great job, you know, storytelling about it. Sure. Yeah. You, de you definitely have. Uh, and as you look through your, your three businesses you have going on right now, what's the, uh, what's the landscape looking for in 2020 and where are you going beyond? Um, you know, we're right in the middle of ski season right now. So I've been out shooting and um, I'm taking off in two days to go to Montana and then over to Denver for the OR SIA show and then leave for Europe right after that. Um, and I've already had a trip to Canada with Ski Journal Magazine and I'm probably gonna go to Micah Creek Heli. Um, it's up in British Columbia again, and then maybe go back to Europe and then hopefully being home as much as I can in between and keep shooting. So winters are really fun. It's just a big mix of figuring out where the snow is and which production crews you can mix it up with. And hopefully at some point or at some capacity decide like where you want to go and who you're going with. Mm -hmm. And then other times you just get plugged in and that's always fun. Um, what are you doing for, uh, what's your active like marketing right now? Is, is like Instagram, Facebook, is that kind of how you're getting like new customers coming in the door? Uh, for Discreet? Yeah. Uh, Discreet's, you know, always, again, another mixed bag of utilizing ambassadors, lots of social media, and then getting involved with... Ambassadors, is that like uh, up-and-coming athletes? Yeah, yeah, athletes and, um, again, just storytellers, whether they're um, skiers, snowboarders, um, or they might be a writer or, you know, a, a founder of, like, a movie company. We just try to mix it up with people that obviously love what they do and we can story tell who they are or they can story tell what, who we are, you know? Right. So you're using like, um, I guess Gary Vee calls it a influencer marketing is kind of what you're doing. You're, you're getting other respective athletes and then they're telling their stories through your brand and you're getting all, their audience awareness attracted yeah. to you. Yeah, definitely. And obviously we have a mix of, um, guerrilla marketing, just getting involved with, uh, regional events that are, kind of core to those communities mm -hmm. and traditional marketing, you know, doing print ads and magazines and banner ads and affiliate marketing and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and plenty of email um, optimization and special offers during the holidays and things like that. Sure, um, sure. And obviously just trying to grow that uh, digital presence as much as we can since we're direct to consumer now. Um, 
And then obviously the races are really exciting. They have a lot of momentum right now. And so getting that schedule out in mid-October was important, which we did. And now, you know, I'm steering ships with Discrete, but I have an amazing team in place, um, especially shout out to Ray that holds things down while I'm out skiing. To the operator? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's the boss. <laughs> and, uh, and then as soon as April comes around, I take the primary position with the races and really sink my teeth into that so that we're beyond ready uh, for our first race that's in late June. So it's, it's a fun balance of lots of communication orchestration when it boils down to it, lots of creativity, um, and then obviously steering ships and then making sure for places I don't have passion that I have someone that I'm working with, obviously, that uh, I can learn a lot from and obviously can fulfill those gaps and the things I don't want to take the principle on. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's a really fun balance, basically. And somehow it all comes together, so I'm able to be in the mountains as much as possible. Um, Important. Yeah, and be mobile, obviously. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been an evolving project, and it's fun to see where it's gotten to. And I'm really excited to see about where it's going to be, too. Awesome, man. So if you could uh, give advice to somebody who's just trying to get started or maybe has a company and trying to do a clothing brand as well, what advice would you give them in the 2020 landscape as it is? I would say, obviously, if someone wants to, it means that they probably have an idea of what industry they want to be in, where their kind of gap of opportunity is. Um, and if you have that, that's all you need. And you have to believe in it. Because you can talk to a hundred different people about what they think you should do. Mm -hmm. But I promise no one's going to believe in your idea if you unless you it. do. And if you do, everyone else will. And you'll make some mistakes. You'll make good decisions. You can have an entire business plan with funding. Um, it doesn't matter. You need to just get in there. Start it. Get your, find your footing. You know, like... You can draw it up on paper all you want, and that's a good habit. But mm -hmm. if you have the instinct that you think you have a gap and you think I have a product, do it. Find your elbow room. So say we do have it. Say we, we got some crazy sock company that there nobody else has it, and we have a super niche, and uh, we think the uh, economy wants it. Now, now what? How do, we, how do we get our brand out there? What's the next step? We got little no, low money here. <laughs> Well, that's the thing about being a businessman, especially an entrepreneur. You have to be able to create opportunity out of thin air. Um, you have to be resourceful where there aren't resources. You need to always find a way. And if you don't know how, you Google it like crazy. You call people that you know that may be a mentor or people you know that uh, have experience. And you ask a ton of questions and you create your own opportunity. Um, and if you have obviously a bit of an idea then like i said a minute ago whatever your strengths are get out there and shout them from the rooftops like crazy and then acknowledge where your you know gaps are and try to get other people involved that can fulfill those roles right out of the gate right because um, like i said when i started discreet i had all the marketing ability in the world and then i quickly found out that you know supply chain and all the accounting and the rep and the cycle of business and the shipping and the inventory and all the software and all these things that are the fundamental pillars that any person that's been doing business could have been like, 
dude, I'm going to save you a lot of headache. Let me help you out. But I, I just tried doing it all right out of the gate. But what I wish I would have done was obviously focus on what I was good at, which I did. But then I was just spinning my wheels trying to figure out all this other stuff when it was so basic to that person. Mm-hmm. So that's all. I would just try to think of what your strengths are, go for it, and what your gaps are. Try to get people involved that can fulfill those roles too. What do you think the number one trait is for someone to be successfully starting in a business? Um, passion. You need to really believe in what you're doing. Um, Because like I said, if you don't, no one else will. And that's, I think, a big part of it. And I think there's plenty of people now that once they've had enough experience in the business world, they know how to apply like their formula, Um, not necessarily having a ton of passion, but those are pretty rehearsed entrepreneur types that really know their industry. Um, So I wouldn't put them in the same bubble as like, your startup common guy. startup guy. Yeah. Because obviously there's plenty of people that have the track record that can come in and stay detached. And I admire that too. And obviously that's a route you can go as well. If you think your idea is good enough and maybe you're bringing on funding and like you're not trying to feed your family on it, you know. But again, um, from what my experience is, it was having a ton of passion and me needing needing it to work, you know, because I wasn't getting funding. It was, it was my baby, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people are under that um, idea. But that's also, you know, there's two sides of that perspective. And that is, you know, if you're the founder, primary employee, um, there's also disadvantages to that. So, I mean, there's, there's so many ways that you can approach a startup, right? But I would just say if you have an idea, you don't have a lot of experience um, in starting a business, I would just say, get in there and start finding your footing because you can think about it, you can ask questions, um, you can read, you can formulate your business plan and all those are good habits. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing you can do is get started and really get into that market and start to learn. Try to figure out who you can, you know, collab with, um, who the media people are that you can somehow create some opportunity whether it's like some kind of trade because like when we first started with discreet i would make branded goods for the movie companies for the magazines and in trade i would get product placement in their movies um, print ads in the magazines Um, so i was getting the retail value of these big print ad um, tens of thousands of dollars for the retail value of what i was creating for them in trade even though they were getting thirty dollar a piece beanie value, which would lead up to their retail of their ad campaign. And obviously each one I was making for them cost about four bucks. Mm-hmm. So I was getting these fifteen, twenty thousand dollar print schedules for what my cost was was twenty two hundred dollars for a twenty five thousand dollar print ad for the year uh, or schedule. So again, like I said, you need to be able to create the opportunity. You need to be resourceful. You need to think about how you can leverage your opportunity um, and your and what you're producing. Because there's tons of writers, media, yeah, regulators, was, all these things. That was that the are last thing I was industry. gonna. Yeah, that was the last thing I was gonna get to. Is um, you, you're a great documenter. You said no one's really doing this, so I wanted to to document it. And and you obviously you and. Um, Oh, I can't remember your photographer's name, but you guys won the X Games Gold for photography oh, yeah. last year. Adam Barker. Adam Barker, yeah. So check out that image. It's it's sick. It's him doing a swan dive, upside down, black and white yeah, image. Yeah. 
Um, so super sick. So you're obviously world class at documenting what you do. If you're gonna talk to uh, you know a startup guy or someone who's just like you know maybe like an accountant or some engineer type who's not really the creative, mm-hmm. what would you say to them? Because obviously Gary Vee's pitching 64 pieces of content a day, so we got to be on Instagram, sure, Facebook, sure, sure. LinkedIn. What would you say to to any normal guy to just get out and start shooting? How do you tell your story without kind of coming off being cheesier <laughs> or salesy? I should say. Well, let's say you're an accountant and you have a good idea and you have you know the feasibility in mind of the budgeting and the capital to get something off the ground but you don't have the storyteller find them find that person and either make them a partner and give them some equity in the idea or if you have the budget and the capital to get this thing off the ground then you pay them um, so find someone that is good at storytelling that can have the common passion and the common vision because like i said whatever you're good at do it and if you have that gap find someone that's good at it because um i've known quite a few creatives that um are really good at doing that but they weren't very good at like soliciting sponsors and uh you know trying to get the nuts and bolts of having a, a budget based on bringing in money they yeah. were just always had this where do you find these guys because i'm i'm in currently in the market for uh creative right now someone to like kind of do this and do post-production things like that like are you throwing out ads on indeed like how do you find these creative guys um that's a good question that's going to be passionate follow you around well it just depends <laughs> on like who what industry you're in right yeah because like obviously in real estate uh, I know a few guys that do tons of really cool drone work and in front of camera um, personalities that I would just find those people. And hopefully they're not in-house somewhere. And even if they are, they still might be interested in the side project, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it. Whatever industry you're in, just scour that landscape. Become the number one fan of all things online, traditional, and social for learning who can be potential partners and uh, doing collabs with you, you know? Mm-hmm. And whether it's a one-time deal and you find you get along, become friends, and maybe they're more interested in just a one-time deal, you know? Mm. Interesting. Well, that's a really good way to look at it. Sounds like you've had, been able to put pieces around you together to grow your company successfully as well. So now it's been like an awesome podcast. I, le- I learned a lot. I hope you guys had a lot of value as well. Um, if you want to leave them with any w- words of wisdom to the community, Oh man, I mean, it's, that's the best part about business is that I feel like at a certain extent, it's like, uh, so, um, it seems like it's kind of just out of reach, but it's really not. Um, I, I feel like, you know, the world is just like a more complicated, uh, adult version of a you know, like a shoots and ladders or a board game, you know? Yeah. And so, and, and really, even though there are all these moving parts to business, they're all quite fundamental. And at this point too, with how much technology and apps and plugins and software, there's so many things that will provide some of these uh, gaps that is just technology now. Um, you don't even need a person. You just need to find what that technology is and plug it in to whatever you're trying to build. Um, so there's never been more tools. And as far as 
people that want to fund these projects, the opportunity, I don't think there's ever been a better time. Um, so I think if anyone's thinking about it, it's, it's uh, why not, you know? And you need to be prepared that it's going to take some perseverance. You know, I, there's plenty of success stories where people just get going and it works magically. Well, that certainly wasn't the case with Discrete. Um, like I said, we had a tremendous visibility, but as far as the nuts and bolts of the business running smoothly, it was an eight-year learning curve. Um, but I stuck with it. And by sticking with it, I learned so much about business and I took everything that I learned from the skiing side of my career uh, and funneled all that into creating the Cirque series. And so the Cirque series right out of the gate has been really successful and I had that intent that I was like, I've learned so much, right. I, know, I know exactly what I'm doing. But it took me a better part of 10 years of being a professional skier and a founder of a clothing company that at one point, like I said, was in like 15 countries with 200 stores in the US and I was the primary sales manager and having these growth years, you know, and, but then being like, this is insane because we should be wildly successful, but every year it's this huge stress. But like I said, I stuck with it. So it took me 10 years to create a business like Cirque Series that, bam, I knew what I was doing. So some people will have that luck. All I got to say is it's a bumpy road. But now that discrete stabilizing, uh, professional skiing is still great, and the races are taking off, everything's stable, and it, I've found my footing, you know? But it's, I always say, probably this is my parting words, entrepreneurism, you know, getting into business for yourself, it's always equal parts challenging, equal parts, um, like, fulfilling. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to end it. <laughs> If uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you, what's the best place to find you? Uh, probably just uh, find me on Instagram. I'll check my DMs, but uh, Cirque Series, at Cirque Series, um, at Julian Carr, and at Discreet. Awesome. Well, guys, there is it. Julian Carr, I hope you guys learned a lot. Um, everyone on YouTube, if you want to subscribe, leave comments down below, how we can questions we can ask, things you want to know so we can make the show better. That would be amazing. Uh, give me a thumbs up, like, and uh, Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you around. Thanks, guys.